Most technology companies rely on open source software. But open source software projects are often maintained by a group of people that is not affiliated with any particular company. When an open source project develops too much technical debt, it can become a tragedy of the commons. Who is responsible for maintaining these open source projects? This is the motivation for open source bounties. Companies and individuals who rely on open source create bounties, which are financial incentives for developers to solve problems within the open source project. Kevin Owaki is the creator of Gitcoin, a platform for open source bounties that is mediated by an Ethereum smart contract. Kevin joins the show to discuss his experience building Gitcoin, as well as some of the problems with the blockchain space, such as rampant ICOs. Gitcoin itself is not a cryptocurrency or a token. It is a platform for open source software to be built more efficiently. And Kevin was an awesome guest. You will really enjoy this conversation. Gitcoin is a nice example of a real-world Ethereum use case because it uses Ethereum for escrow. If I post a $25 bounty for someone to fix a bug in my open source project, I can lock up Ether in that smart contract. And when the bug is fixed, the programmer who fixed it will submit a pull request on GitHub, and I'll release the Ether from the smart contract to pay them. It's pretty useful to have a programming abstraction of an escrow contract. And I think this is at least the kinds of things that we will see Ethereum be practically useful for. We would love it if you filled out a listener survey at softwareengineeringdaily.com survey. This helps us decide what other content to focus on. And please send me an email, jeff at softwaredaily.com. Let me know what you're thinking about the show, if you like it or not. We also have an active Slack community, which you can find at softwareengineeringdaily.com Slack. You can message me there. There's a bunch of other people hanging out and talking about software engineering. And if you are interested in finding all of our old episodes, you can download the Software Engineering Daily apps for iOS and Android. These have all of our old episodes, and they have a greatest hits feed as well, which is a curated set of the most popular shows. People have really liked this feature of the greatest hits because it's kind of hard to find which shows you want to listen to. And the apps will soon have offline downloads and bookmarking, which are features that people basically need out of a podcast player. So hopefully the podcast player becomes more usable from those. Kevin Owaki is the founder of Gitcoin. Kevin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Jeff, thank you very much for having me. You worked at some startups before you got into this Ethereum and blockchain space. How would you contrast the traditional world of startups with this emerging world of blockchain developers? Yeah, that's a really good question. As you noted, I have a degree in computer science and about 12 years experience in the startup ecosystem in Boulder, Colorado. I actually uh, I spent two years out of school working in corporate America just because I didn't know that startups existed. This is like 2006. This is before Facebook really took off and created the Web2 revolution. And I just hated corporate America. And I just I, I found a an opportunity to go through Techstars, which is an accelerator out of Boulder, Colorado. And I was like, holy smokes, this is my golden ticket. And I've pretty much been doing CTO lead engineering stuff ever since. Uh, I'd like to say that as a 23-year-old CTO of a startup, three-person startup, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> but I've sort of grown along with the, uh, the Web2 revolution ecosystem has matured. And I think I've matured as an engineering leader alongside that. I, I mean, I think that traditional startups are always kind of focused on finding funding and how can we build relationships with investors and uh, VCs and and things of that nature. And, and that's never really been my forte. I've always just kind of been a product guy and into the programming. So I always felt like on the management teams of startups in the Web2 revolution that I did, I was on three different startups uh, that they, they were always kind of split between their users and their investors in terms of the management team's focus. And one of the things that I got to say that's really neat about blockchain, which, you know, I think there's a lot of neat things about blockchain that we can get into is that your users can be your investors in your network. And that creates a focus on the management team on the users. And sometimes that can make the difference between a, a, a failure and success. It's really exciting. 
and the mechanism for aligning the users and the developers, in some cases in modern times, has been the ICO. What do you think of that model? Oh, boy. And we're going to really get into the rat's nest now. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I will preface this by saying that I do not have a financial background. I am in no way qualified to give uh, financial advice. In no way am I here to even really talk about, to talk in that capacity. I, I kind of come as someone who's interested in creating a, a movement in, in software to uh, change the way open source software is funded. So that's the perspective that I bring to this whole kind of morass that is the initial coin offering space. I think that, you know, we saw a crowdfunding revolution in when Kickstarter came out. I want to say like 2011, 2012, uh, uh, around then. Projects yeah, I think could sometime around then, yeah. Yeah, without like going and hitting Sand Hill Road for investment. And I think that that was crowdfunding that was an early kind of like an early canary in the coal mine for what we're seeing with the ICO boom. I mean, everyone was really excited about crowdfunding for six or 12 months. And then all of a sudden there was these, all these projects that had raised a ton of money and were able to create a ton of hype and didn't deliver. And crowdfunding on Kickstarter has sort of matured. Uh, that ecosystem has matured. Uh, I should also mention that Indiegogo is out there. There's a bunch of different crowdfunding funding platforms and we've seen those, those all mature and kind of ebb and flow between hype and delivery. And I'll expect that the ICO boom, which has just kind of taken off in 2017 on the back of the Ethereum network, is going to probably go through a similar maturation cycle as all these projects that raise tens of millions of dollars either change the world or completely fall fall flat. Uh, and some of them are probably going to be really great at managing their capital and, and ride out the, the bust. And there's probably going to be some of them that flare out in a spectacular fashion, as is uh, common in every tech boom. But ultimately, the ICO will be proven to be a useful mechanism for raising capital, just as Kickstarter has. And you hear people talk about how there is just a necessity when there's a new type of technology or a new fundraising mechanism that is act that is fundamentally useful there is necessarily a time where the pendulum swings too far in the direction of too much money too much hype and that's that is necessary because that's the market testing what are the limits of this mechanism and so you know it's it's unfortunate that we you know we have just seen probably a, a number of projects that have raised way too much money uh, off of way too little technology and it's going to leave a bit of a black eye on the space for a while but in the long run it's going to be extremely useful to have this ICO mechanism yeah i mean and, and this is where i'll kind of weave in gitcoin a little bit because it sort of tells you a little bit about how i view the space the fact that gitcoin is not a token we have not yes. ever done an ICO and we do not plan to do an ICO we're just focused on uh building product that helps developers sustain their work in open source software and solves the incentivization problems with with open source software and i and i view it's going to take four or five years for Gitcoin to realize its mission. I am lucky to be funded by a project called uh, Consensus that is a blockchain venture studio out of New York that happens to be founded by Joe Lubin, who is also a founder of, of the Ethereum project and just kind of has a long view on, on all of this space and uh, the disruption that it's going to create. So I think that my view is sort of informed by ignoring all the hype with the ICOs and uh, just focus on building a product that that users love, which I think has been a recipe for success as, as far as I can remember in, in my career in, in technology. And yeah, I think it sounds like a great pairing, the consensus and Gitcoin pairing. By the way, I should mention consensus is a sponsor of the show, but you know, I wanted to do this, this interview anyway. So partially because I'm a Gitcoin user. That's one of the reasons I want to have you on is because it's interesting that you did not do an ICO, even though Gitcoin resembles the kind of project where an ICO might actually make some sense, but it's you know it's clear you made an autonomous decision to kind of do a more conventional route. Well, I guess it's not necessarily conventional because you're going under the auspices of a venture studio. So why did you decide not to do an ICO? I guess to make it to make it a little bit more concrete for people who are trying to understand the ICO space. Yeah, sure, and I, I'm glad you asked that question because I don't think I've even I've been on a few podcasts and I don't think that I've even been asked that question directly. So first off, there's like an ethical thing there where is it ethical for a project to raise tens of millions of dollars? Before 
before there's product market fit. And I'll leave the listener to decide in their own minds how they splice and dice that. In my mind, you know, maybe if the founders have a track record, maybe if they're playing in a space where there's a ton of upside, maybe if there's momentum that is associated with customer contracts but no product. Well, what but, are, let's see. What are the what are the historical examples? We've got uh, mm-hmm. color. Theranos. Um, <laughs> what else is there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's kind of like a bias in the media that we're the most like emotionally impactful ones are the ones that get reported. So that's true. I, but, but yeah, so I mean, I, I actually don't even know the answer to the question. But like, when I'm trying to make a decision with in, incomplete information in, in, in the startup in Gitcoin, I've, I think a lot about how uh, Ethereum... So my view of blockchain is that it's the TCIP of money. So uh, TCP IP is just a simple protocol that allows computers to send information from one computer to another without an intermediary. And it completely changed our lives with respect to the internet and how it changed our media and you know what Napster did to record companies. I think blockchain could do to banks and insurance companies because blockchain is the TCP IP of money. It's a fundamental protocol that allows the sending of value or money from one computer to another without a centralized intermediary. So take all the like, you know, all the stuff that's happened to the world because of the internet in the last 20 years and project that forward. If the financial system, which is arguably an order of magnitude more influential in our politics, in our society, was completely revolutionized by open source money. In that view, if you have that large of a view, I think taking the first business model that's on the table for a project with as much potential as Gitcoin would be pretty silly because, you know, there's all these projects who have created this white paper and they have this vision of the world and how it's going to exist in four years. And they have these token economics and they're all tied to that vision after they've done an ICO. They have to deliver it because they they put it in their white paper. And I just think that the world is evolving so fast and, and rapidly that there's going to be more killer applications on the Ethereum blockchain and that... I'm going to want to have a more informed opinion and the opinion of the community before deciding if and when to build a business model and to get Quentin. Well, that's a very strategic approach. You are maintaining optionality in a time of intense market volatility. It's, it's, It's the right way to do it in my book. It's funny because I'm I'm watching this space as a journalist, basically, or a reporter, a podcast, or whatever you want to, whatever this job is, and I completely agree with you at this point. After doing enough interviews, and by the way, there are people in the audience who are so sick of these blockchain episodes I've done. I've done like twenty or twenty five in a row, or something like that at this point. But the reason is because of what you said. Like we're about to see the the financial system like totally just get the table turned on it, and it's it's going to be really entertaining. And I'm trying. Trying to like lay a, a foundation for that, and at the same time, I'm seeing that, and I'm like, I'm in the podcasting business. Like, I kind of want to get back, get back into engineering because there's a lot of opportunity here. And I guess you were kind of in that that mindset too, because around I think 2015, Ethereum came out. As far as I know, you were not a blockchain aficionado until around that time, and probably you started seeing Ethereum. You're like, whoa, this is cool. This is the real deal. And then you meandered around for a bit and looked for something to work on. Is that right? Yeah, that's more or less correct. And uh, I just wanted to share a funny anecdote before I answer your question. So I popped in the SE Daily Slack yesterday just to say hi to you. And like the first message I saw on the general <laughs> channel was like, it's been two weeks talking about cryptocurrency. When's it going to stop? And there's like a few emojis that are that are thumbs upping it. And I'm like, oh, well. I guess it's good that Gitcoin's not a cryptocurrency; it's a blockchain project. But I'm not sure that the audience is going to even listen if it's if the project's called Gitcoin. So fatigue is hitting people, and you know you got to filter out the noise. And hopefully, funding open source is a mission that is is your your audience cares about enough that you know all the mumbo jumbo about blockchain is is kind of a means to that end. Anyway, so sorry, your question was oh, I meandered around in the space before starting Gitcoin. Yes, and you know did, when you were meandering around, did you? You feel this sense of, oh, I got to find something to work on. I know that there's excitement in this space, but I don't know exactly how to capitalize on it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if capitalize is the right word. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, okay, I think not, that, ca- not capitalize, but we, we, it's, so we're all developers. We're all looking for that sense of internal traction where you find that project where it's like, yes, this is it. I can iterate. I can iterate on this. And that is in contrast to the, you know, the, 
maybe you're at a job you don't necessarily like and you're like trying to find something to work on and like we all know that feeling where you don't have that internal sense of traction. Yeah, for sure. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. So like I started this project in 2015. I remember buying uh, I bought 10,000 Ethereum in 2015 off of Poloniex and and I'm I like to say that I was smart enough to buy, but not smart enough to hold because when it went up like 30%, I was like, sweet, I just made a couple thousand bucks. I am going to go buy a mountain bike with this money. And it's just so funny in hindsight, when you look after you found that internal traction and and you look backwards on the decisions that you made when you didn't have the the benefit of hindsight, it's funny how that works. So, uh, so yeah, that was my more sort of like financial experimentation in the space. The technical experimentation was I built a uh, machine learning cryptocurrency trading robot called PyTrader and I open sourced it and quickly got like 1.3k stars on GitHub, built a community there and quickly got burnt out and gave up on that project. I built a... This was a a trading bot for cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it just basically took a bunch of classifiers in the Python sklearn libraries and uh, tried to classify market data into buy, sell, hold decisions. I think that how it performed was I had one Ethereum... No, I had one Bitcoin and I was able to make three Bitcoin in profit, but I forgot to account for fees. So I actually lost 0.1 Bitcoin. And, you know, it's just like rookie mistake kind of stuff when, you know, and I also realized that I don't really care about financial engineering when, when I was doing that project. So I moved on to another project called Adblock to Bitcoin. This is all nights and weekends, by the way, still employed full time in, in the tech scene in Colorado at my friend's company and uh, built this project called Adblock to Bitcoin, which basically took uh, Adblock to ad space and and help publishers recover lost revenue from the ad-blocked ad space by putting a Bitcoin QR code with a donation solicitation in that ad space. So that was a neat project. And uh, Wired, Wired wrote about it, which was kind of like a jolt to the ego, which was pretty cool. But no one ever used it. <laughs> so, so that project fizzled. And since then, all that I've done in the space has been in the Ethereum space. So I'm a community organizer in Boulder, Colorado. I run the uh, Ethereum Boulder meetup and also the Boulder blockchain meetup, which has been a great way of getting to know people in the space, but is by all means kind of a less technical uh, approach to to getting into the space. And then the uh, the last project that I built before I started Gitcoin was called You've Got ETH. It was kind of a kind of think of it like it was a playoff of You've Got Mail from the 90s. And the idea was to make it as easy to send Ethereum to someone as it is to send an email. And uh, built that as at a hackathon out in LA called the Dapathon and won the community prize, which was a which was a pretty big honor and kind of have just found traction in the uh, Ethereum space ever since. But I'd like to think that Gitcoin is informed by all those that graveyard of projects that I had before Gitcoin was started. We said about the financial engineering experiment, like trying trying out like, hey, maybe I'm a trader person. I had a, a similar foray. You know, my first job out of college was at a trading place in Chicago. And on the one hand, it's really exciting and exhilarating to, to just see those numbers go up and down and kind of like, you know, you're just correcting over time. It's like you're playing a game and you're programming a computer to play a game a little bit more intelligently over time. And that part of it is cool. What's less cool is, you, you know, you realize you're not really building a product. It's like you're building a character in a fighting game or something like that. And it's, it's not as exciting as the, you know, as the, all the opportunities that you could have in, you know, in computer science. But I think, you know, there's, there are a lot of people that are drawn to the the trading and the speculation side of it and then you know nothing wrong with that but i think you know for those people okay there's kind of an obvious route to doing financial engineering type of stuff in this space you've got money and volatility and you just okay get involved and start figuring it out and you'll make some money but the people who are building stuff it feels early still and i think that's that's what makes your your approach to gitcoin intelligent and i think we should we should get into that so like basically what gitcoin is you have issues on your github repo you've got your open source project and you've got you know issues that you've created and you want to create bounties for those issues and if you want to make a bounty for it you decide on how much money you want to pay somebody if they're going to be kind of a mercenary and and solve the problem in your open source project or maybe there's somebody that's already involved in the in the open source community and they just decide to pick it up to make a few extra bucks and the bounty is enforced it's it's codified within an ethereum smart contract 
And so when the person finishes the bounty, when they finish that work, they are awarded the money that is locked up in the Ethereum smart contract. Did I get it right? Is that an articulation? Yeah, that's exactly what it does. Okay. So my first question, why is Ethereum useful for this? Why, why couldn't you just use Stripe, for example, and set up an escrow account through Stripe? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question, and I think it's one of the. So I mean, right now we're sort of in a space where we're buying, we're selling to Ethereum developers, and I will note that we're kind of everything's based off of the Ethereum toolset, and we're not really ready to venture out into the rest of the the wild world of open source yet. So basically, Ethereum is a worldwide near instant blockchain based payment network, and what that means is that a can send money worldwide almost instantly for very, very cheap. Uh, so, you know, if you were to put up an issue, it, you not only have a pool of developers in the United States that you can work with, but worldwide, which I think is for a globalized world, that's pretty important. I think that uh, not having to have the overhead of being an intermediary is important for Gitcoin. So if you look at Upworks, like Terms of Service, it terms of service, then they basically have an LLC called Upwork Escrow, which basically holds the money in between the freelancer and the person who's hired them until it's paid out. And because on Gitcoin, the money is locked on, locked on the blockchain, I never have access to that money. So no one ever has to worry about, you know, a, a, about my intentions or my stewardship of that money because it's all just on the blockchain. And then so the third answer is that we're really interested in uh, tokenization and using that as a means of allowing people to align incentives between people in their in their open source communities. So, you know, we talked a little bit about ICOs earlier in the podcast, but but basically tokenization is just basically taking shares of your software licenses or of your project or whatever has value to your project and putting it in a, a token standard called ERC20. ERC20 is just the standard for distributing tokens on Ethereum. And because there's that standard, Gitcoin can be interoperable with any token that adheres to that standard. And what that means that is that if in six months you decide that there should be an SE daily token that has whatever use case you decide, then you could stake those tokens for contributors to contribute to SE daily. So you're kind of like taking a step towards this distributed organization in which you pay out shares of your software licenses as currency for your project. And that wouldn't be possible at all with any any legacy financial product. And those three reasons in combination are why we chose to base the uh, project on Ethereum and on the blockchain. And I think that the fact that Ethereum has 30x the active devs of the next most active smart contract platform in blockchain meant that it was just a no-brainer to build it on Ethereum once we had decided to, to build it in blockchain. Those are some super smart reasons. So the first one you mentioned is international payments. Uh, Stripe may not be available in Vietnam. I don't, I don't know if it is, I, but I mean, there's probably some area of the world where it is not accessible whereas Ethereum is a global payment system. The second issue you mentioned is probably not good for, you know, if you just think of it from the point of view of building a company, you don't want to have to set up a separate escrow service in order to have your your company work. And this is one of the things that's amazing about Ethereum that the naysayers may still not understand. This is a way that you can have programming, financial programming constructs for your application. Okay, you want an escrow account? Create it in JavaScript. You don't have to set up a, an escrow a company to, to handle that. So you mentioned that you know this is, this is a programmable escrow, and you know an escrow is kind of a complex financial product. It's simple in what it does, but if you think about the, the kind of work that you would have had to do to implement at an escrow service, I don't know, just two or three years ago, it's, it's a lot more work, probably a lot more overhead. Yeah, I don't know if I would implement it in JavaScript, but uh, <laughs> Web three, whatever. I mean, maybe there's you know, I, I'm just envisioning somebody has a smart contract that provides you with escrow services and you access it through Web three or something like that. Yeah, no, I was I was mostly starting to make a joke because anyone in the Gitcoin community knows that I love programming in Python, and as soon as I start writing JavaScript, oh, okay. I end up in callback hell. But it's just because I'm not a good JavaScript programmer. But there is an interesting subpoint here, which is that when you make the jump from web development to 
Solidity and Web3 programming, you're working in an immutable smart contract. Once it's deployed to the blockchain, your your code cannot be changed. So it's not like, you know, continuous improvement deployment where you can make changes after you've deployed it. Like once you've deployed it, it's out there because the blockchain is an immutable data structure. Uh, But the second more larger point is that when I'm working with web development, I there's always a, a back out path for me if I create a bug. Whereas these smart contracts in the Ethereum space can be holding tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes even millions of dollars. So bugs can be super, super costly in the blockchain space. So, uh, you know, it, you can create a, a JavaScript or a Solidity script for your, for your escrow service, but please, please have it security audited and make sure that there is no attack surface in your code because if not, you're going to have a bad time. Okay. So we've kind of careened into the discussion of of this project. When did you start thinking about these ideas, the idea of attaching bounties to Git issues? Oh, and by the way, okay, I I didn't explain the third or re-explain the third issue you gave, the third reason you gave, which was very important, which is the fact that eventually people can use Gitcoin to facilitate payment of tokens for issues. And what I think is great about this, the, the show that's actually airing today is about Status, the, the, which is a company that raised $100 million for an, an Ethereum mobile client. And they have a two-year vesting schedule for their tokens. And I was like, that is a little dangerous because you're giving yourself an out to exit the company in, in two years. But, you know, what he said to me is like, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm married to this project. I'm really excited about it. And like, OK, that's great. But, you know, show me on paper that, that that's the case, that you're married to the project. You know, maybe you can't do that. But, you know, what he did say is in the long run, he wants to have the community maintain the project. And he's going to do that through incentivizing the token holders with status tokens. But, you know, here is here is a way where you could actually just, you could fund mercenaries as well. You could fund the token holders as well as funding the mercenaries out there who may want uh, the status token to be paid for um, status. So hopefully that makes sense to people since now we've both explained the thrusts of Gitcoin and the long-term vision of it. But yeah, when did you start thinking about this? When did you th- start thinking about the importance of attaching bounties to Git issues? And why is that fundamental to your vision of the future of software development? Yeah. So, so I mean, like, you know, if we talked about, we talked about that kind of graveyard of projects that I, side projects that I started and let die in 2015 and 2016 and how financial, discovered that financial engineering did not motivate me at all. And so, you know, what's the opposite of like a competitive race to the bottom kind of like financial engineering project? Well, it's a project that's mission driven. So I one thing I've discovered about myself is that starting with why, starting with a mission, something I'd like to see in the world that I think is good is a good place to start. And one of the things that I think that has been most influential in my career and the entire generation of software engineers that I've come up with is open source software. Open source software is like manna from the heavens because it just it's powered all of our careers. I mean, Postgres, Apache, WordPress, like these are just, I I could rattle off a hundred, like we could fill up the rest of the podcast with open source projects that have just been really, really good for the world. And I think that, you know, we should, A, we shouldn't take that for granted. Like I think if I was in my parents' generation, I would have come up building things on the Microsoft stack and everything would have been closed source. And I would have had to email my buddy at Microsoft instead of looking on Stack Overflow or on GitHub when I had a problem with with the software. So, so open source has like, Hopefully, I've established that that it's been a good thing in in the world. But there's this weird problem with incentivization mechanics in in open source, where it's creating billions, tens of billions of dollars in economic value, but the expected value is free. And somewhere in between those two numbers, software developers make between $20 and $250 an hour, depending on your niche and your geographic location and your seniority and all that kind of stuff. So what the problem that we set out to solve with Gitcoin is that there aren't a lot of great sustainability options for open source software contributions. I mean, it's basically corporate sponsorship if you really get down to it and and doing it professionally. I think. But the problem with corporate sponsorship is that it requires a lot of scale and uh, administrative overhead. And so I, I was kind of like thinking about this problem and realized that, well, if the future of the world's financial system, if you accept the premise of that the future of the world's financial system is based off of blockchain and 
that uh, blockchain allows you to unbundle the business models of legacy infrastructure. Well, what's the combination of the two ideas? And the hope is that blockchain is the spark that allows us to unbundle the corporate sponsorship of open source down to small and medium sized repos so that guys like me and you can make money for our software development and for the work that we're doing that's good for the world in in open source. And Bounties is just the first tool in our toolbox that we're launching that's aligned with that mission. But I think that there's no higher calling that I can think of in my life at this time other than family and community that, that I can contribute to the world besides growing open source software and pushing open source software forward. So that's kind of like the why behind the project. And there are bounties in in software development, but uh, yeah, as you said, that you know it takes place through corporate sponsorship and it's not an open market for bounties. And so you think of an example like, what was it, SSL? Was it SSL, the, the open source SSL library where there were like two people maintaining it and then was it Heartbleed? The, like the Heartbleed issue happened basically because it's two people maintaining this horrendous code base for years and years and years and years that the entire internet depends on and then the Heartbleed bug is discovered and it's a hair on fire moment. And if you would have had Gitcoin there, perhaps on an earlier basis, you know, the two people that were working on OpenSSL could have gone to Google and said, hey, can you guys like give us like $5 million that we can just allocate to Gitcoin issues and and we can do it as we please. You could just imagine this loss in market friction that could result from the creation of Gitcoin. Yeah, that's true. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's really been powerful for us has been security bounties. When we launched, we just basically said, you know, we're staking for Ethereum. If you can find any bugs, then if they're high in the OWASP model, then we'll pay you out a lot. And if you, if they're low in the OWASP uh, severity, then we'll, we'll pay it out a little. And so, you know, you could imagine a situation in which Google and Yahoo and all these other players that spent probably hundreds of thousands of dollars patching their system because of these bugs in the hair on fire moment had just instead funded some security bounties on Gitcoin for the SSL project, then we could have made the internet more secure and avoided this whole kerfuffle with, with Heartbleed. So, I mean, I think that, you know, there is an opportunity there if, if people have enough foresight to help grow open source. People have talked about gig economy applications on the on the blockchain you know the uber or the airbnb of blockchain applications gitcoin seems like the first one to gain actual traction do you, do you think there's uh, there's going to be more of these like how do you see the the gig economy on the blockchain evolving I, I think the the world at large right now is trying to figure out what a 21st century jobs program looks like. And, you know, the gig economy is sort of a loaded term because I think that in some places it's been a really powerful way for people to earn their living. But it's also in other places kind of seen as pretty predatory. And, you know, I've been thankful enough to be a software engineer or I'm thankful enough to be a software engineer who has never sort of been short on cash and had, you know, been in a position where I need to sign up for Uber. So I think that I'm not in a place where I've really experienced it and sort of know all the trends. But I think that we're interested in, for now, providing tools that allow developers to augment their income. And, you know, once we get enough confidence in the economy around Gitcoin that sufficient that people are making enough money to start supporting themselves off of Gitcoin, then I think, you know, that will be a major milestone that we've reached. I think that a future in which software developers, it's, it's easy for software developers to find work as it is for an Uber driver today, that's a potentially powerful vision of the future, but it's not without downside, as I mentioned, from the legacy financial infrastructure's gig economy. And, you know, I would like to make sure that we create an environment in which software developers have leverage over their life circumstances and are well-connected in a community that's going to support them. And that is my vision for the future of knowledge work on the blockchain. But I would be remiss to say that I know what other blockchain-based jobs projects are thinking. I think that we're sort of in a niche in blockchain right now. And 99.9% of the hot air in the media is covered by price swings and volatility and technical analysis and all that crap. And hopefully 
people started to see the larger picture that it's about people and their lifestyles and their circumstances, more so than trading and speculation and Wall Street style stuff. And, you know, hopefully we as a community will rally around a positive vision of the future of the gig economy. But I haven't seen it yet. I think it's more to come. I guess a salient difference between the fevered dreams of decentralization lovers about the decentralized Uber or the decentralized name your gig economy application between that and Gitcoin is the decentralization fever dream is to have the entire database and the reputation system and everything be decentralized. Whereas the Gitcoin model is more like, well, you know, for the most part, the, the gig economy system is remains in a decent in a centralized database running in a Django application or whatever and you're using you know ethereum for a small fraction of your application how far are we from people having the ability to have that decentralized like reputation system and all that cuz that's what really excites People like my, like the first uh, Carl Flourish, uh, who maybe you know, the, an Ethereum guy. But the first conversation I had with him was was really about this decentralized Uber, and he was so excited about it. And you know, we we are far from that from that vision, though. So first off, I would just want to like take a step and step back and appreciate the new vocabulary phrase that I'm going to steal from you, which is decentralization fever dream. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that we've all been in a room where multiple people are in the same fever dream. So, I mean, I think one big difference between, you know, the name your gig economy on Ethereum or on blockchain projects in Gitcoin is that Gitcoin's actually launched. Made <laughs> exactly. A, made a <laughs> purposeful decision not to boil the ocean and to which, which, which by things. the way, which by the way is even a step above many of of these ICOs, these ICOs that have raised $2,500 million, they haven't even launched yet. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, I think... No they, judgment. No, yeah. no Hashtag no judgment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm judging hard over here. I mean, but so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we're basically, we've seen all these projects funded and hopefully in the next two or three years, we're going to see some of them launch and actually gain real market traction. And I think what's really exciting for me is about a decentralized gig economy system is that in Uber, for example, or an Uber-like product, uh, if you're a manager at Uber, you're always making decisions about you know, do I optimize for what's good for my investors and for my market share, or do I optimize for what's good for my users, meaning the, the riders and the car drivers? And what's really exciting about this decentralized fever dream about a decentralized Uber is that the users of the network in decentralized application can actually be the investors in the system if you design your token in that way. And I think that that's really, really powerful to have all of uh, members of a of of an application to have their incentives aligned, and not to belabor this point too much, but we're recording this podcast in the middle of March 2018, and there's just been a ton of stuff in the news about Facebook leaking the data of their users to all sorts of different places. I mean, I think the most recent one is this Cambridge. Analytica thing where 50 million people's information was used in order to do something which sounds like it might have been nefarious or not with the election. And I just think that, you know, the interesting example about Facebook is that they have a chokehold over everyone's social graph. So basically, if you're not happy with Facebook, then you can either quit and throw away that sunken cost of the social graph that you built up there, or you can stay, which is a pretty binary choice. But in this Web3 world, we're going to have this open data layer where you have sovereignty over your data and over your reputation. And if you don't like the way the social network that you're dealing with, if you don't like their font color or you don't like anything about them, then you can just move to a competitor and you can bring your data with you. And I think that that creates a fundamentally different relationship between the consumer consumer and the investors in the in the network than one that we've seen before. And I'm very excited to see some of these projects launch and hopefully have their users' best interests at heart. Indeed. I mean, when I get into conversations with people about this who are anti-Facebook, I'll you know, I I make the classic programmer techno optimist defense, which is, you know, you get these awesome free services and you you know you pay for them in advertising that is served to you. And you know, would you really want to give up those free services just so that you don't have ad targeting? And I always present that, but the truth is that that's 
that's a false dichotomy because there is a wider range of options that we can explore for delivering social network-like facilities, Google-like facilities to people, where it's not necessarily, oh, you know, you either you either pay for it or you opt out or you have to opt into surveillance. There is a wider range of, of interesting options that we could explore. Maybe the richest people in the network pay for everybody else, something like that. You could totally imagine you know, Ethereum billionaires being charitable in that regard, you know? Yeah, I mean, like I, like bootstrapping a social network by paying for the people who can't afford it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was all this excitement when Facebook launched, and I was in my like early twenties, and you know, I, I think I was excited at that time that I could just look up anyone, and you know, if I had a crush on a girl, I could like check her out and see what she's into, which you know, at the time, no one admitted they were doing, but I think a lot of people were doing. But like ten years in, it it seems like holy smokes, we gave up all all of our personal data to the system, and now all we're getting is pictures of our Facebook, like our high school friends' Facebook pictures of their babies. And I just think that, like, in hindsight, it was like, wait, we gave up some really powerful information about ourselves in exchange for this utility. And to your point, the decision to quit or not quit is very binary. And, you know, hopefully we can do better as as a technology sector and provide a more gradient array of, of options to users. Okay, so... We're kind of like careening close to the end of our time now. But, uh, you know, we haven't talked about Gitcoin as much as I would like. I'm, I'm very curious about the market dynamics of Gitcoin. So when somebody posts an issue, like I want, for example, I want my font color to be changed to a nicer shade of blue or implement continuous integration on my project. You know, those are both issues that you could see that, you know, somebody could post on GitHub and they could create Gitcoin issues associated with that. They would have to decide how much money to pay, f- how much money they're going to lock up in the in the smart contract that's going to be associated with that. Although those two issues have a wide gulf in terms of their complexity. So like you, you talk about, you know, changing the color on a web page that's a very discreet and well-defined task that somebody could do. And so maybe it's easier to figure out a price for that one. But then you have these tasks like implement continuous integration. Like that's a bit of a more complex task. There's more subjectivity to it. And yet you still have to attach a price to it. So I just use that as an example of the pricing dynamics seem very difficult to to figure out. So what, what kinds of things are you seeing on the platform in terms of how people are pricing and what people are willing to actually do the work for those bounties on? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, we've seen a few hundred bounties successfully go through the platform now. And so I think we have a nice little data set to analyze with respect to pricing dynamics and several other market dynamics. So, I mean, I guess the, you know, the question for you when you're posting a bounty, I, I think you kind of took us through your thought process. Like, is this a good thing for a bounty? If it's more on the discrete side, then it's a good thing for a bounty. If it's hard to specify, then maybe it's it's not so good for some random internet stranger to do. And it's it's more something that you should iterate through. And does it require privileged knowledge to your systems? So, I mean, like that example that you gave setting up CI would require at least, very least, SSH access to to some sort of system or API keys and, and things of that nature. So we've seen a lot more successful bounties for easy to specify tasks that don't require privileged knowledge. And, you know, you basically have to kind of do a gut a gut check for how much you want to pay for something to get done. And I think a lot of things factor into that decision. Uh, we're looking to build a pricing engine to automate some of this, but basically how fast do you want it done? Are you looking for someone who's like a senior level person? Are you looking to possibly hire someone and this is a try before you buy kind of situation? Or are you just kind of looking for someone who's very junior, is looking to learn new skills and build a re- reputation? And so, so you're willing to pay on the lower side of of the the market value for a software engineer's time. So I mean I think that you know there's entire books that have been written on complexity estimates in software engineering and I think with 5 minutes left in our in our podcast it'd be impossible to traverse that entire terrain, but I think it would suffice to say that we're we're looking to add a feature to figure out the pricing mechanics when posting to Gitcoin sometime in the next quarter. What are the other things you're focused on? What are you working on in the Gitcoin project? What is the sub projects that are underway? 
Yeah. You know, as I sort of alluded to earlier in the podcast, Gitcoin's uh, mission is to grow open source software. And I am under no illusions that bounties is the only tool that should be in our toolbox. I think there's that that quote that we all learn in Computer Science 201 that uh, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every, pr- then every problem looks like a nail. And I think that uh, you will see a toolbox uh, coming out of Gitcoin that allows you to play with incentivization mechanics in a lot of different ways with open source software and blockchain. So if you go to gitcoin.co slash tools, you can see some of those, but just to traverse that a little bit. So we've got bounties, we've got tips, which is just a way of saying, hey, here's 0.1 Ethereum. Thanks, you did a great job. We've got uh, dev grants, which we are launching soon and are pretty excited about. We are building a feature that will facilitate a mentorship economy. So either out of the good of your heart or in exchange for some Ethereum, you can uh, mentor a junior developer in whatever you're good at. And we will also soon be hosting a repository of off-chain bounties. So with the use case of bounties that we've talked about so far, it's all been ones that have Ethereum staked in a smart contract. But, you know, with the reality of the ecosystem in the Ethereum space right now is that things are kind of fractured and we can't expect that everyone who is providing great work to a community in open source software is going to use our bounty standard. We hope that that'll change in the in the future. But in the meantime, we have a repository of bounties from across the web, whether they're Ethereum-based or Bitcoin-based or even plain old USD-based. And we've just basically hosting that as a service for our users so that Gitcoin can be a, a one-stop shop for them to figure out where they can make money and meet people in open source software. So I think I told you, let's see, I probably told you about four or five of the tools that are going to be in our toolbox, but we've got about 30 on our roadmap. And uh, we're just going to kind of we're going to kind of iterate through them and we're going to double down on the ones that work and we're going to kill the ones that don't. And hopefully by this time next year, we will have a, uh, a functioning set of at least a dozen or half a dozen tools that, that software developers will be able to use to grow their skills and hopefully make a living. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, I could even envision teams eventually you know, coming up on Gitcoin and building a reputation and then... Mm-hmm. Maybe you can contract an entire team to build you a product MVP or something, but that's that's getting probably into the future, and that's getting into the fuzzy product development that is less good for Gitcoin today. But I mean, I'm sure I could see that being a product. I mean, we're we're very focused on providing the building blocks so that we can create a bottoms up set of tools that can realize that vision. Whereas I think a lot of these ICO projects, like future of work things, are kind of like starting with what the future is going to look like and trying to build it all kind of from a more top-down standpoint. So, you know, we'll see which which approach is successful and, and yields results for the community. Okay. So I'm interviewing all these people about Ethereum and, and whatnot, and I'm kind of trying to figure out, is there a tipping point to where Ethereum becomes something that the average developer is using or that the average person in the world is using? Like, I don't know if it's if it's adoption of the currency or if it's a question of scalability of the blockchain, that doesn't seem to be it. It doesn't seem to be scalability. I mean, is it the fact that private keys are still really hard to maintain and juggle? And so you have a lot of people who hear about Ethereum or Bitcoin, but they still don't really get involved because they're afraid of the public key infrastructure. But then even those people could be using Coinbase, but then there's not really anything to do with that cryptocurrency other than speculate on it. And maybe there's there's maybe there's no silver bullet answer here, and this is just like a slow process of adoption and and uh, periodic spurts and and gradual progress. But do you have any any thoughts on that? Like, what are the things that that I should be watching out for that are going to indicate that something has triggered and this stuff is becoming mainstream and not just mainstream in a speculative sense, but mainstream in a, okay, I can build apps on this and I can build businesses and and real Web3 stuff on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm glad that you framed it in a, like, you know, let's like put all the speculation stuff aside because, you know, I, I think that we're sort of reaching saturation of the get rich quick with blockchain kind of stuff. And I hope that people will focus on building and that side of the space as opposed to the more Wall Streety side of the space. So and I think that for me, it comes down to drivers and barriers, right? So right now people are getting into the space 
and they're confronted with all of these questions and problems, as you noted about key management and how do I back up my keys and how do I keep my wallet safe? And so the barriers are quite high, but the drivers are quite high too, because people are thinking they read these news articles about how they can become millionaires overnight with the blockchain. And they're like, oh, well, maybe it's worth overcoming these barriers. So what I would really like to see so that we can move out of the speculative nature of blockchain is that the barriers come down. And that means that everyday consumers who don't have that high drive to speculate and basically just want to live their lives can use Ethereum. And I think that that'll be the tipping point in which Ethereum is everywhere. So I think there's basically two scenarios in which Ethereum takes over the world. And the first is that Ethereum becomes a Web3 web browser. So basically everyone manages their own wallets. They have their own private keys and they can sign transactions within their web browser and wherever else they want associated with whatever use case uh, associated with value transfer in this new blockchain ecosystem and the users control their keys. So I think that that's, that's scenario one with blockchain. And the second scenario, which I think is more of like a failure path from the first scenario for the space is that Ethereum becomes Linux. So what I mean by that is that everyone in the world uses Linux, whether or not they know it or not. Whenever you hit a website, well, it depends on what website, but you're probably hitting some flavor of uh, Red Hat or Ubuntu or whatever, and you just don't know it because it's all abstracted away from you. And I think that the the analog there with Ethereum is that is that you won't manage your own wallet and you won't even know that it's blockchain in the back, but you know that there's all these new benefits and everything all of a sudden is cheaper and the incentives are more aligned for you, also there's data portability, but you just never have to learn about key management or anything like that. So I think that those are like basically the two scenarios in which Ethereum is everywhere and uh, they, they're they slightly different in terms of how aware the consumer is of them. But I think that like the base case is that you, the bottom line is that they're still powered by Ethereum. So it's still powering the, the internet of money in, the, in both of those cases. All right. Well, I really like that explanation. Thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. It's been great talking. Jeff, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. And if your listeners wouldn't mind checking out Gitcoin.co and popping into our Slack community with any feedback or thoughts on the product, we'd be happy to hear from them. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Jeff. Wonderful. It's been great. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Wow. 